From recent characters like Thanos in Marvel's Avengers movies to today's subject, Academy Award-nominated film Joker, villains are becoming less one-sided. Some may even find them sympathetic. I'm Rem Whitcraft, and this is Fiction Briefly. It used to be that the hero was the human and the villain was some type of monster. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein portrays a villain created by a doctor's manipulation of nature. Readers can sympathize with the monster even if they don't condone his violent retribution. But even vampires aren't necessarily villains anymore. Over a century after Frankenstein, the interview with the vampire and the Twilight series favor characters who used to be seen as blood-sucking demons. When these unconventional heroes win, the story ends with a satisfying feeling for the audience. Sure, there are tragedies like Oedipus, but in general, we know we're watching from the perspective of the good guy because the hero typically prevails. History is written by the victors. If the winner is the hero of the battle, the loser is often forgotten. This is ingrained in us even though the victors aren't always the most humane, enlightened, or competent as we like our fictional heroes to be. In a film, we want the hero to win, but in real life, we may root for underdog athletes because a win for them would be more dramatic. The Joker is definitely the underdog, but do we root for him in the sense that he's the hero of his own story? Or is he a loser on the wrong side of history? Flipping the formula on its head, seeing the villain from a hero's perspective, is an entertaining way to look at any situation, and Joker serves as a long overdue backstory to this familiar and compelling villain in the DC Batman universe. If you haven't seen Joker, beware. Spoilers ahead. The film begins without reference to Joker's tragic childhood where most heroes' journeys originate, but the story does contain some of the hero's attributes from Otto Rank's Myth of the Birth of the Hero. The child loses his parents and is raised, in Joker's case, by a deluded adoptive mother. The hero is identifiable by a mark or wound. Joker's makeup is synonymous with his character, like a permanent injury. His former profession a constant reminder of his failure at a normal life. He also has a signature laugh as a result of a traumatic head injury. Right away we are primed to sympathize with this disturbing and debilitating condition. It's used to establish who the villain is in this story and highlight Joker's victimhood in the scene with the social worker, the woman on the bus, and the Wall Street hooligans. Rank's heroes also reconcile with the father's representative or they take revenge on their father. Joker idolizes talk show host Murray Franklin. In a fantasy sequence, Arthur attends the Murray Franklin show, and the performer is established as a father figure when he says, I'd give up everything to have a kid like you. This sets up the audience for the climactic scene which brings about the end of the movie. Despite its unconventional subject matter, Joker follows aspects of Vladimir Propp's formula from Morphology of the Folktale as well. The order, however, is altered quite a bit. 
In stage one absentation, a member of the family leaves home. Joker Arthur Fleck visits his social worker. In this case, a symbol of an uncaring society serves that villainous role. She exhibits ambivalence toward our hero, who is vulnerable due to his excessive laughter. The government is established as yet another villain. It cuts funding for services like garbage collection and social programs designed to keep Arthur out of the mental hospital. This causes chaos and unrest in the city at large. In stage nine mediation, the hero learns what he's up against. The film spends a long time on this stage, establishing Arthur's innocence and the outside world as the villain he must defeat. Arthur takes good care of his mother, indicating loyalty and compassion, yet she keeps vital information from him like his parentage. She tells him to smile and put on a happy face, and Arthur tells people, she says I was put here to spread joy and laughter. This sounds plausible, like something a concerned mother would say to protect her vulnerable child. But Penny Fleck is hiding the abuse Arthur suffered long ago, which resulted in a head injury. The scene on the bus reveals how society already demonizes Arthur. Even innocent interactions result in disaster when his uncontrollable laugh gets involved. His job is also unfair. Dressed as a clown and holding a sign outside a business, the sign gets stolen by a couple of kids. When Arthur goes after them, he's attacked in an alley. A hero would fight back, but Arthur is a victim. He rolls into a defensive ball while they kick him. When his boss wants Arthur to return the sign to the business owner, Arthur takes his understandable rage out on garbage in an alley, seemingly unable to stand up for himself. At this point of a hero movie, there would normally be a stage 10, beginning counteraction, where the hero hatches a plan. Instead, the script furthers the villainy of the other characters surrounding him. Stage 14 produces a magical agent, usually from a mentor-like figure. His coworker Randall gives him a small gun for his protection after the kids beat him. Arthur says, I'm not supposed to have a gun, which shows his intention to follow the rules of release from the mental hospital. This gun provides the turning point of the movie, stage 12, first function of the donor. With the help of a magical agent or helper, the hero gets tested. Wall Street hooligans who happen to work for Bruce Wayne's father, Thomas, attack Arthur for laughing on the subway. He rolls into the same defensive ball as before, only this time he possesses a means to fight back without the violence required of hitting or kicking. All he has to do is pull a trigger. While this act certainly puts him on the wrong side of the law, I don't believe he has alienated most of the audience. We want him to do well, to stop getting picked on and start standing up for himself. Like any typical hero, we understand his motivation, even if we don't understand the Tai Chi-like moment in the bathroom which follows. This brings us to stage 13, the hero's reaction, where the hero's skills are tested or he frees a captive. He reacts to the actions of the donor. 
Arthur's dance could indicate a psychotic break with reality or an attempt to ease the rush of adrenaline. But what I think it does for the audience is it separates us from him. So even if we're still sympathetic, we realize he operates on a different wavelength. Stage 19, liquidation of lack, occurs a little early. The initial lack has been his inability to stand up for himself, and now Arthur feels a surge of confidence. He cleans out his work locker after he's fired, and when others make fun of him for bringing a gun to a children's hospital, he loudly blames Randall, violently punches the time clock, and crosses out smile on the sign above the stairs. Some of us see this as Arthur fighting back against his oppressors, others a further step towards the dark side. As he gets stronger and takes action, his villains get stronger too. Arthur's out of medication, yet the city cut funding for the social services he needs. His mom's hero, Thomas Wayne, calls him a coward in a TV interview when referring to the murders of Wayne's employees and Arthur's attempt at stand-up comedy fails despite his former co-worker's encouragement. It's clear they were misleading him to ensure his humiliation. The interaction with Wayne and the question whether Arthur was truly adopted or his mother was railroaded into a mental hospital is treated as a subplot. The real action of the film occurs with the villain who symbolizes all of Arthur's hopes and dreams talk show host Murray Franklin. Now we start over at stage four, Reconnaissance, where the villain makes an effort to attain knowledge needed to fulfill their plot. Franklin puts a clip of Arthur's failed stand-up routine on his show and eventually invites Arthur to appear on television. Stage five, Delivery. The villain succeeds in part of their plan. Arthur agrees to appear. Meanwhile, he reaches a low point in his mother's hospital room where he says he hasn't been happy for one minute in his whole life. He suffocates her, goes home, and practices for his television appearance, which involves simulation of an on-air suicide. Stage 29 is the transfiguration, where the hero gains a new appearance. Arthur's transfiguration pairs with Eleven, the departure, where the hero leaves the home environment, this time with a sense of purpose. Arthur dyes his hair green, dons a colorful suit, and dances triumphantly down the steps of the steep hill which used to symbolize the soul-crushing climb to his squalid apartment. He's just violently killed a man, his mentor figure, Randall. In hero movies, the mentor often dies, but not at the hands of the hero. In the next stage, Pursuit, detectives looking for the subway murderer chase him. He gets hit by a taxi and hides on a subway car. Here, the writers utilize stage 23, the unrecognized arrival. Slipping into the crowd of clown masks, Arthur takes the disguise of a costumed rioter, which starts a fight. The mob takes down the detectives, and Arthur walks out of the station with his makeup spoiled, but he gets away. While waiting backstage at the Murray Franklin show, the formula jumps back to stage six with trickery. The villain tries to trick the victim either to capture the victim or steal something valuable. Franklin treats Arthur with respect when close by, even correcting a subordinate who attempts to make Arthur call the host Mr. Franklin. 
Arthur takes this opportunity to secure the nickname Joker, which owns the insult Franklin leveled at him on the previous broadcast. But in a repeat of Stage 9, Mediation, the hero learns what he's up against. While Arthur waits just behind the stage curtain, Franklin makes fun of him and his skills as a comic, making it clear that he intends to continue Arthur's humiliation. In Stage 7, Complicity, the victim is either fooled or forced into cooperation. Already set to appear, Arthur does the Tai Chi again, turning it into a full-on dance when the curtain opens. In Stage 8, Villainy, Franklin eviscerates Joker. This spurs Arthur's confession to the killing of the Wall Street hooligans. Joker states he has nothing left to lose and nothing can hurt him anymore. After Franklin's show of disgust, Joker shows this is untrue and changes his plan from suicide to homicide. This brings about stage 18, Victory, where the villain is defeated. Remember, this is Joker's villain, not necessarily identified by the audience. When he kills Franklin, Joker just sits there with a smile on his face, then shoots again. He is taken away in a cop car and views the mayhem that was supposedly caused by his subway murders. At this point, he may not be your hero, but his actions inspired a gathering of others downtrodden by an inhumane and unjust society. When his cop car is hit by an ambulance, we arrive at stage 22, rescue. This is where someone rescues the hero. A couple of clown-faced rioters pull Arthur's body out of the cop car and set him on the hood. In stage 31, the wedding, the hero marries and is rewarded or promoted by the family or community, typically ascending to a throne. Joker wakes up on top of the police car in the middle of the riot with the clown crowd cheering for him. They couldn't possibly have seen the Murray Franklin show but he has been crowned unofficial leader of this broken society's malcontents. He stands on the car, posing and dancing before making his signature smiley face in blood. Violence and hate prevail. Cheating someone out of their life, or cheating the law, the Joker crosses a line between victim and villain the moment he shoots the Wall Street hooligan in the back. Like Frankenstein's monster, the Joker's victimhood ceases when he reacts to his oppressors with cruelty. This movie shows how thin the line is between the perception of good and evil. It's not even that the Joker kills Franklin that makes him evil. The hero often kills an antagonist. But the murders are underhanded, cowardly, and hardly eye for an eye. You could say he cheats by not giving his victims the chance to defend themselves. For this reason, his ultimate incarceration is not tragic for the audience, but cathartic as he is seen as taking the wrong way out of his dilemma. But Joker also has his happy ending. He now acts instead of being acted upon. In his mind, he gained his dignity. He defeated his biggest detractor and saw for the first time evidence of like-minded individuals in the rioters. Sure, he will be incarcerated, but he's already suffered from his perspective worse humiliation. 
this future suffering will be a result of choice rather than misfortune. And as we know, he won't be locked up for long. Though this movie supposedly takes place in a different universe from previous Batman movies, part of us understands he will survive to someday utter, You ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? This script plays heavily on the Joker's early victimhood, appealing to the people who believe something traumatic must happen to a person to push them to the evil side. That's what separates fictional heroes and villains. Heroes rise above adversity while villains resort to the same evils done against them in order to take back what's been taken from them. But real-life villains often have the power. They have everything going their way. They just want more than everyone else. You can comment on this episode or suggest new content on my Facebook page, Fiction Briefly. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe on whichever platform you listen on. Once again, I thank Kestrel and Mexican Spy Company for all music and sound production for this show. This has been Fiction Briefly, giving you a glimpse into the mind of an artist. Thank you for listening.